Welcome to Health Matters at Sargent College. The mission of Sargent College is to advance, preserve, disseminate, and apply knowledge in the health and rehabilitation sciences. BU's Sargent College strives to create an environment that fosters critical and innovative thinking to best serve the healthcare needs of society. Each episode of Health Matters at Sargent College will include faculty, students, or alumni who will share their knowledge with you. I'm Karen Jacobs, the Associate Dean of Digital Learning and Innovation at Sargent College, and I'll be your moderator for each episode. Welcome to this episode of Health Matters at BU Sargent College. I'm delighted to have as our guest today, Carly, who will be able to give more of a background about herself, but she's a recent graduate of our Boston University entry-level doctorate in occupational therapy. So Carly, welcome, and maybe you could tell us you know, what have you been doing since you graduated from Sargent College and, and where are you working? Sure. Um, thank you so much for having me, Karen. Like Karen gave a great introduction, I'm Carly. I'm an occupational therapist working in a few different settings, um, especially in the mental health area of the field. So I currently work at the Home for Little Wanderers as an occupational therapist working with children who are in group home care and supporting them in making plans and making progress to support their safe return to a more permanent living situation. I'm also working as a consultant at the Child Witness to Violence Project out of Boston Medical Center, providing direct consultation on cases as well as group programming for caregivers and children impacted by trauma. Well, you're doing quite a bit. And in um, a very interesting area. So let me let me start with a couple of questions. Um, what do you think is occupational therapy's role in supporting families impacted by trauma? And I'll give you a two-part question. Um, what components of occupational therapy practice are well suited to work with this population? I bet yeah. you feel like you're back in class with questions. <laughs> right. Well, I think they're great questions. I'm always happy to talk about it. Yeah. So I think that the role is really big. I think that, you know, there are several areas of occupation that are impacted by trauma from things like functional communication to social participation, school, work, play, sleep. So, you know, many areas of a child and family's life together. And these are the areas where OT can really be helpful. Um, Additionally, following an experience of trauma across all areas of occupation and living, the way that a family begins to cope with trauma happens in ways that are really routinized, whether that's a healthy routine that's supportive to them, like staying organized or keeping their schedule predictable, or routines that might be getting in the way of their occupational performance, like avoiding certain behaviors or spaces or repeating old patterns of behaviors. And OTs are really well suited to look at the routine with the family and really examine what parts of it are working well and supporting the family and the child and what parts of it could maybe benefit from a little bit of shifting. 
OT practitioners are also really uniquely suited to support families who are impacted by trauma because we have an understanding of the relationship between the mind and the body. And so much of what happens to an individual when they're exposed to trauma, whether it's violence, another kind of emotional or interpersonal trauma, they can feel impacts on a physiological level. This is especially true when trauma happens early on in someone's life. The exposure to trauma can really impact that person's nervous system and the way that their body responds to the environment. Because OTs have this understanding of sensory integration, sensory modulation, and a really balanced understanding of both motor learning and social learning and more cognitive theories, we know that the body and mind influence each other really strongly and that changing one or influencing one can change and influence the other. The way that OTs understand this puts us in a really good position to support and empower people who have been impacted by trauma to really use this relationship between their mind and body to anticipate, understand, and eventually manage the way that their emotions and physiology respond to the experiences that they have. And then I think the last and kind of the hallmark way that OTs can be really useful in this area is that OTs are experts at activity analysis. It's at the heart of what we do. And it's also essential to self-management and to caregiving. So when we're thinking about supporting an individual and managing their own experience following trauma, we can support them in analyzing activities that they experience and making modifications that can be helpful and doing the same for caregivers. So for an individual who experiences emotional distress, especially in the moment where they're feeling stressed or activated, it might not be clear to them what brought on that uncomfortable emotional state. And with our lens of activity analysis, we can support that person first through our own modeling and then through our teaching and empowerment to analyze the context of that distressing emotion, whether it's something in the physical environment, like a smell, the tone of someone's voice, the amount or lack of physical space, or maybe it's something in the internal environment, like a sensation of feeling hungry or something in the social environment, the activity that they're engaging in. Supporting a person in knowing what created or activated a state of distress for them is essential in helping them to anticipate, avoid, or mitigate future experiences of distress. It also is really helpful in providing someone with a sense of control over their emotions and helping someone to see that they can take control in their situation and influence how they feel and influence what things are going to bring about for them, which is especially important following traumatic experiences, where it could be that a sense of lack of control or powerlessness contributed to the trauma that that individual experienced. When you look at it from a caregiver level, activity analysis can be taught to caregivers or help caregivers to read the cues that a child is giving to them. So when trauma occurs in the context of caregiving, like between a parent and child or caregiver and child, one difficulty that often comes up is the caregiver having trouble or some confusion reading the cues that the person they're caring for is giving them, which makes it difficult for them to respond. And that can create frustration for caregivers, isolation within the relationship, and decreased confidence for caregivers which can have a really stressful impact on the family relationships. And by having the tools of activity analysis and understanding the way that relationships develop, OTs can empower caregivers to understand what their children are asking for, understand how their children are asking for things or seeking to have their needs met, 
And then we can support those caregivers in responding effectively, which supports co-regulation, relational attunement, and self-efficacy and confidence in that caregiver. I loved everything that you were sharing, and it's so clear what an important role there is for occupational therapy. Now, you mentioned some of this, but let's, let's have you share this as well. What are the common goals or areas of difficulty you address with families impacted by trauma? You mentioned you know, some of this already, but maybe um, a little bit more. Sure. Yeah. So the way that trauma is understood right now is through this thinking that when trauma occurs, it impacts someone in a developmental sequence so that whenever someone is exposed to trauma, whatever might be developing for them at that time is likely to see an impact or a difficulty. So an example might be a child who is exposed to trauma in preschool, kindergarten age, between four and six, when they're developing those social play skills. If they have trauma at that time, they're likely to have more difficulty in social interactions than if they had had exposure to trauma when something else was developing. So if trauma occurs earlier, like during early infancy, we see more of those physiological changes in things like sensory processing and integration. Additionally, when one developmental skill or area is impacted early on, the developmental skills that come later tend to be impacted as well because of the foundation having been impacted earlier. So this chain of developmental impacts can be adjusted or disrupted through strong, positive relationships and healthy developmental experiences. So even if someone has exposure to trauma while they're developing those social skills, really consistent, predictable, and safe engagement in meaningful relationships can go a long way to address those difficulties. So I think that some of the main difficulties that I have been working with with families is co-regulation, which is the ability within especially a dyad or two people to read each other's cues and see what does this person need from me right now? And with that information, maintaining a personal sense of calm internally while soothing another person. So you can think kind of the classic example is a caregiver with an infant. If an infant is crying and likely that's distressing to the caregiver to see a child in distress, But in order to be effective and practice co-regulation, that caregiver needs to maintain their own sense of calm in the context of that stressful situation while soothing the infant. And that can be impacted or something that's really difficult for families impacted by trauma. But it's also really essential in the way that someone and a family can recover and make progress after an experience of trauma. So a lot of times what may happen is that in a dyad, it's rare that either just the caregiver or just the child is impacted by trauma. It does happen. Uh, But oftentimes I work with families who have trauma that they've experienced together or they've both experienced trauma, which can make it more difficult for them to communicate verbally what they need, especially if trauma occurred at a time when language was developing for a child. Um, It can also make it more difficult for them to maintain their own sense of calm and to read each other's cues and really understand what they need from each other. And that creates this cycle of a child who cries out to a caregiver. And if the caregiver doesn't necessarily know what to do or how to respond or what the child is asking for, 
that creates a challenge moving forward in the relationship because the child might learn when I cry out, my caregiver is not effective in helping me or the caregiver might learn I can't soothe this child. And that creates decreased self-efficacy, decreased trust in that relationship and can make it really hard for them to communicate and move forward. So we're working a lot on things like communication, understanding each other's cues, acknowledging each other's cues, even if you can't meet the need. So supporting a caregiver in noticing, you know, when your child runs from the room, it's not that they don't want to be near you. It's that maybe they need this other thing. Maybe they need a little bit of space. Maybe you can validate that for them and offer that. Um, Other areas of difficulty that we see and It's also connected, but a lot of difficulties in sensory processing and sensory modulation. So feeling the sense of either decreased or increased stimulation that comes from exposure to trauma and can be associated with difficulties focusing, difficulty engaging in an environment or feeling safe, difficulties in school. It can also create difficulties, again, within that dyad when sensory processing might be impacted differently for the caregiver and child. So maybe the child needs one environment while the caregiver really needs a different environment. So how do we find the match between the two? Another aspect of sensory processing that's impacted is also interoception. So that internal sense of what's going on in your body. Am I hungry? Am am I starting to feel hot? Am I starting to feel hot because it's I need a fan on, or am I starting to feel hot because maybe I'm getting angry? That internal awareness of what's going on in the body is often really impacted with exposure to trauma, especially exposure that happens early on in development. So I spoke about this difficulty reading each other's cues. Sometimes it's that one or both members of the diet have difficulty reading their own cues, which in turn, if you don't know what you need, you might just know my body's uncomfortable, but you don't know whether it's hunger or maybe you need a nap or maybe you need a hug. It's hard to be aware of those things. So it's hard to read your own cues and then communicate them, which creates challenges in the relationship. And lastly, Again, all of them go so hand in hand, but just a difficulty feeling safe in the environment, a sense of safety, which we know has to happen if we expect a child to succeed at school or to succeed at making friends or to sit at the dinner table with their family. So that I think is really central, but also comes out of all of these different impacts that we're seeing. Carly, this is so informative and I'm so impressed with how knowledgeable you are. Um, I've got a couple more questions too, in fact, and you mentioned caregiving and you did mention some uh, of the impact, but have you noticed trauma to impact the role of caregiving itself? Yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, caregiving means so many different things to different people, whether it's across cultures or across individual family systems or even within the individual a lot of the way that it can be impacted is in confidence. I think that that is kind of across the board. However, someone envisions their role of being a caregiver, if they're feeling like they're not living up to that or meeting those expectations, it can have a really detrimental effect on their self-efficacy. There's in the evidence we see a lot of 
lowered self-efficacy for caregivers who have a history of trauma. Um, And that can come from not knowing how to meet their child's needs. But also in a lot of the literature, we see that even when co-regulation is not impacted, so a caregiver might be really effective at meeting the needs of their child, they still have lower caregiver self-efficacy than other caregivers who don't have a history of trauma. So I think that that's really essential. This It's so meaningful to individuals who are caregivers to feel like they're doing it well, like they're giving good care, like they're providing support to the people that they're caring for. So when their self-efficacy is low, it can have a lot of negative effects on their mental health and on the relationship. It creates this reciprocal cycle of feeling less confident with giving care. So maybe starting to avoid some of the behaviors that go along with caregiving um, and creating discomfort in the relationship there. I've also seen in some of my family clients difficulty engaging in play. So, you know, children, one of their primary occupations is play. It's what they want to do. It's how they relate to people. It's how they make sense of the world. And when there's been trauma within the dyad, caregivers can often feel fearful of engaging in play, whether it's they're nervous that something in the play might activate or trigger a memory or a flashback for their child and they're so they're apprehensive and less playful or maybe they're just unsure of how to play with a child whether it's because of their own experiences as children or just not really knowing how to approach that play and then that difficulty or that fear of being playful with the child really harms the relationship. It makes it harder for the caregiver and child to build a relationship because play is their primary tool for attunement, for feeling where each other are and connecting in that way. Um, And then lastly, I think this might go quite hand in hand with self-efficacy, but a lot of caregivers that I've spoken with in caregiver support groups and psychoed groups have shared this feeling or the sense that they have to do things on their own, that if they acknowledge that caregiving is hard, people might think that they're not capable of it. Uh, Or this fear that if they ask someone to watch their child for a little bit or to pick something up for them, that that's an acknowledgement that I can't do this myself and I'm supposed to be able to do it myself. Or that feeling of no, no other caregiver struggles So it's just me and I'm not doing it right if I ask for help. And that can really lead to caregiver burnout and put someone in a position where they're feeling really depleted and they're afraid to ask for help or maybe they have asked for help and the answer hasn't always been yes. So they've built up this fear of asking for help that is really isolating and makes it really hard. We know that caregivers don't work alone. There are a lot of people who work to care for children totally on their own, and it's really hard, and help is important and is an important part of that process, but there are also a lot of caregivers who are fearful of asking for help. Carly, I think you gave such wise advice. Um, Finally, last question. What resources and activities do you think have been most impactful to the clients you work with? Yeah, so I'm still learning all the time. I'm just kind of getting started and really interested in this work and wanting to find what works well. So getting a lot of feedback from my clients that I'm working with and hearing what's working for them. So I'll kind of speak from what they have shared is helpful. So I think first and foremost for caregivers impacted by trauma, social support and validation. Being in a group together where 
I'm in the room. Maybe I ask a couple questions. Maybe I facilitate. But it's really about them being together and them getting to hear from someone with lived experience and getting to really connect and do so much more for each other than any sort of you know, therapist-driven intervention, really getting to hear from each other and feel validated and understanding that they're not the only ones, that this is a common experience or that this is a shared experience and that there are ways to work with things and hearing how other people have had success as a way to see that you can implement those strategies too, or you can find success in your way too. Other things that have been helpful, according to clients, is environmental modification. So in my work at the Home for Little Wanderers, we're currently working with the youth in the group home to work on redecorating the space. We have this room where a lot of the youth participate in family therapy, which can sometimes bring up difficult conversations for them. So sometimes that space carries this stressful energy or memory for the client. So we're working with them now. How can we decorate this space with input from the youth, with being client-driven to make it the most comfortable, to make sure that it has regulating sensory input and things that are familiar and comfortable that give the youth a sense of ownership over the space to increase not only their comfort, but also their sense of autonomy and control in their buy-in. They're feeling like my voice mattered in this space. So now I'm ready to engage more. I'm ready to feel safe and I'm ready to engage in the important conversations that happen here. Additionally, working in clients' homes to build a space with them, working with the child and the caregiver together. How do we make a space where you each can go when you need a break or when you need to feel less stimulated and and relax? How do we build that together? Whether it's recently for a client, we got a pop-up tent because their apartment doesn't really have a space where they can separate. They have a shared bedroom and there's not a space where the youth can just go be alone and de-stimulate. So we have a pop-up tent now and that's his tent and he got to decorate it and put the things that he wanted in it. And that's his space that he owns. And that is important in giving him space and teaching him self-regulation, you know, when he feels overwhelmed to just take a break and go and have that space. And I think building that into the environment is really important. Um, Throughout all of these things, finding ways to support autonomy and choice making. So giving that individual a sense of control over their situation as much as possible and as constantly as possible, not just at the beginning of the session, not just when we decorate the space, even though that's kind of the first step that we've been going through at every turn before we go into the next activity, before we end the session when we decide who is even a part of the session, giving that individual as much control as is possible. Within that, supporting their communication, whether it's through giving someone who is feeling elevated or not able to verbally communicate at a time pictures to communicate, or with a younger child or someone who's having a lot of trouble sometimes narrating for them. Like I see that your body's really closed off and your fists are clenched. It looks like you need space. I'm going to back up. So giving them a chance to build their communication. And that's working on all of those things, working on identifying the nonverbal cues that they're giving, teaching them some of that interoception. Like I see that your body's getting really stiff. That's telling me that you might be frustrated or narrating their communication for them in that way. 
And then lastly, education for everyone, for caregivers, for children, for their teachers, everyone that they interact with in their lives so that there's understanding. For some caregivers, you know, they had questions about what typical development looks like regardless of trauma, what they should be expecting from their child in terms of behavioral regulation at five. And sometimes it's adjusting expectations and understanding how trauma might be impacting the development and the relationship. The key component of all of these interventions is the relationship, is rapport building, is creating a sense of safety and acknowledging the importance of the relationship. The most kind of impactful trauma that really sticks with people is trauma that happens in the context of a relationship. That is the trauma that is interpersonal traumas or witnessing interpersonal traumas that can have a really long lasting impact. So the thinking and best practice is that in order to have a healing impact of a really effective treatment or response to trauma is that it also needs to be in a relationship, but in a healthy, supportive, and consistent relationship. So it's either building that relationship yourself with a client by being client-centered and making sure to give them choice and learning what's important to them, or maybe it's taking a step back and acknowledging that you're not the person who's going to have that healing relationship. Maybe someone else is, and how can you facilitate that and support that? The last thing that I'll share is a quote from a caregiver who participated in a group at the Child Witness to Violence Project and was a part of a group, a parent psychoed group, and then a group for the dyad for herself and her son together. And she shared that the group helped her and her son figure out how to accommodate sensory needs and to calm down when overstimulated or when dealing with a sensory thing that he dislikes. The new activities were also helpful in soothing with herself and both of her children. Plus, it was very validating and empowering to hear other parents share their experiences and feelings, which made me feel like I'm not the only one with these struggles. Carly, that's a a wonderful way of concluding this really informative podcast. If people would like to learn more from you, how can they reach you? You know, do you have social media? What would be the best way? Sure. Yeah. So it's Carly DeMeo, C-A-R-L-I-D-I-M-E-O at gmail.com. Happy to hear any questions or especially feedback if anyone wants to connect and learn more together. Like I said, I'm just starting to learn all of the things that can be helpful and meaningful to clients, and I would love to learn more. Carly, thank you so much. And thank you, our listeners, um, for following Uh, Health Matters at BU Sargent College. Thanks. Thank you. 